Between finding things that explode or pop or fizzle and trying not to set light to our notes with Bunsen burners, many of us will have quite fond memories of chemistry lessons. But it's not all parlour tricks and Bunsen burner safety. There's a considerable amount of content that needs to be learnt, and with the scientific terms and symbols, it can feel like an alien language for students and parents alike. So just what are the best study methods to yield good results? Hello, and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, the founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they head towards their GCSEs in 2021, or at least what was intended to be their 2021 exams. Each week, I catch up with these very different teens to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. Then, with a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that come up. Now, they could be broad themes, such as motivation or managing mental health, or they could be quite focused, such as how best to revise for a specific subject. These are normal teens, so you can be sure that we'll be covering topics that young people up and down the country will be facing. So, if you're a parent, a carer, or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, we're looking at chemistry, why an understanding is important beyond school, and how to prepare for exams. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. David Patterson. David is a chemistry teacher and researcher, and previously David was a subject advisor with a UK exam board. As well as being an author and blogger, David is active in working on teacher training and support with the Royal Society for Chemistry, amongst other organisations. David, thank you so much for joining me today. Chemistry forms part of the core GCSE subjects for the vast majority. Students can struggle to get to grips with the content, grappling with terms, equations and approaches. Some of our students question the need to do it at GCSE if they're not planning to take on science as an A-level in further education. David, it's fair to say that you love your subject, and that's quite infectious actually from your articles on your blog. In one article, you talk about developing students' scientific capital, and I wondered if we could start by talking about what that means and why you think it's important. So scientific capital really is the idea that students have an appreciation of how science impacts in our everyday life at its most basic level. You know, we we talk about children being digital natives these days. They've grown up surrounded by technology, which is obviously a, a product of science. But so many of the decisions that they will make as citizens when they become adults and so many of the challenges that we face as society and as a species over the next 100 years or so will have their problems and also their solutions based in science. So for them to engage in in those conversations and debates and make sensible decisions about things like vaccinations or use of pharmaceutical, which type of food to eat, do they go for the electric car or do they uh, go for a hybrid? All of these things are based on having some understanding of science. Now, it doesn't have to be a deep level understanding like your Professor John Whitty to be able to engage in this but to have some idea about what the basics are in the science that surrounds our everyday life and a bit about the scientific method, how we come to understand scientific knowledge so that when they read, for example, articles in the newspapers, they can tell whether this is sensationalised information, which is perhaps based on a, a very abstract study 
and whether it is relevant to them and whether what they're reading is useful or whether it is just been written with someone's you know ideology behind stark headlines like if you drink red wine you double your risk of certain types of cancer for example as a red wine drinker i'm definitely hoping that's one of those things that i can rely on my gcse chemistry to say that's probably not true (laughs) (laughs) it's really interesting i think to look at the content of the gcse as being so much more than just the gcse exam in and of itself and i think although we probably recognize that to a limited extent actually hearing what you've just said really does drive that home that it's absolutely all pervasive isn't it this science and chemistry and and so actually having an understanding is important for parents as well as for the students yeah we've gone from you know the last 40 years from a situation where not every student would study all of the three sciences and just as a side point on that biology chemistry and physics do cover a lot of science but there is plenty of other science out there. These just happen to be the three main strands that we study in secondary education. Since the 1988 national curriculum, everyone does combined science at least, which is all three of those. So you can't not do one of those three sciences. But the key thing is that as teachers need to recognise that there's this kind of funnelling activity. You start with all the students and then you get to A-level and you lose maybe 90% of them. And then you get to degree and you lose perhaps another 90%. And then you get to the end of degree and maybe only 10% of those actually go on and become practicing scientists. So we need to always recognise that the vast majority of students who we are teaching up to GCSE will not go on to be practicing scientists. So we can't set out to say the only point of my subject is to get people onto A-level. And as A-level teachers, the only point of my subject is to get people to go to university to study my subject because... There are so many other things out there and so many other jobs which people will go on to do. But fundamentally, underlying all of that, not only the science capital you get from learning the subject, but all of the skills which, if you study hard and kind of do well at the skills like the numeracy and the literacy, the ability to plan, to hypothesise, to argue in a good rational way, all of those things are useful broader skills which are useful for everyone in their lives. And certainly that's the kind of thing that I've noticed throughout my own career I suppose is actually that scientific method doesn't just apply to to science as you say setting out with a hypothesis I believe that this is the case so I'm going to test it and then approaching it in a systematic way to find your results while I'm not writing it up and, and drawing beautiful diagrams it is absolutely a way of approaching problems and opportunities throughout life as well. Yes, we're looking to make some observations about something in life, come up with an idea about that. But crucially, we collect evidence and then we see whether that evidence fits our hypothesis. If it doesn't, then we need to throw out our hypothesis or you know, perhaps our method of collecting evidence was flawed. But we are relying on the evidence from the natural world. We're not just understanding the world just through rational thought. There needs to be some kind of evidence collection there. And beyond the skills and that scientific method, there is within chemistry, as within all of the main strands of science, as you say, physics and biology as well, an awful lot of content that needs to be tackled that students need to get to grips with. I noticed on your blog and with your permission, we'll provide a link to it, that you've started to create these parent primers, which are booklets or chapters of a book that will help parents to understand the topics and the subject matter that their children are going through. And how important do you think it is for parents to actually understand the detail of what it is that their children are going through? Perhaps not the detail. I mean, this came from my own daughter who's in year 10, so been through her GCSEs herself. 
I looked at the subject she was studying and I can talk to her about her sciences, obviously, and her maths and English to an extent. But it was history, really, the one that hit me. She chose to do GCSE history. I did geography. And so I just thought, well, I know very little about what she's studying. And I thought what would be really useful to me would be a short little primer on the areas and the, the periods of time that she was studying. So I didn't have to read the whole textbook to be able to talk to her about, you know, what happened in those periods of history. And I thought, is that kind of thing available for parents for reading chemistry or some physics? And there's lots of books out there. And in, in a way, it was, you know, just give it a go, see if I could write something in a format that was readable, that didn't dumb the subject down to the point that, you know, it, it doesn't give you enough to have a you know, a decent conversation with your child about the subject and just put it out there and see whether people, you know, use it. So it has been downloaded sometimes. I, I forget how many times. I got some nice feedback. So I wrote the second chapter and as ever with things, other projects and other things like, you know, lockdown and whatnot came along. So, you know, I've got two chapters out there and if people find those too useful, that's fantastic. Well, certainly I did. <laughs> if, and if that feedback encourages you to, to do the third, then fantastic. I've got a daughter as well in year 10, so it does help. It's one of the things that actually it does. It, I'm not preparing to take the GCSE myself and other parents feel exactly the same, obviously. And actually, we still want to be in a position where we can have an intelligent conversation or at least point them in the right direction without feeling like we have to be subject matter experts, which I think is important. Within the text that I read, something that really struck me was how you talk about chemistry as being something that builds on itself. So you talked about the properties of chemicals and then the structure of chemicals. In order to know the properties, you need to understand some of the structure. To really understand the structure, you need to know some of the properties. How much do you think students should be encouraged or motivated to persevere before they reach a eureka moment? Because that building can sometimes take quite a while, can't it? This is a real big problem for a lot of students with chemistry particularly. There are many, and you, you picked a, a good example there, property structure and bonding is the kind of the bit where it all comes together. But there are lots of concepts in chemistry which rely on other concepts in chemistry or ideas. And to understand A over here, you've got to understand B, but to understand B, you've got to understand A. So what is an atom and what is an element? Those two are defined based on each other. And so if you're going to start by defining an atom as the simplest part of an element, and then you're defining an element as being made of atoms, you've got a self-referencing definition there. So where do you start? And this builds up from year seven upwards. And it's a nice little phrase of bootstrapping the education. You've got to do a little bit here and then do a little bit on the other side and then a little bit more and a little bit more. And you kind of jump back and forward or you spiral in the curriculum in the, in the technical language. So you keep coming back to these ideas. And yeah, it can be hard for students because they don't get a, a good whole understanding of it straight away. There's things you can do. You can do particular activities or particular practicals and give them that feeling of accomplishment. But it doesn't come easily all the time. And some students can be disillusioned by that. And you need to kind of support them in their, you know, learning over time. And just keep talking to them and saying, look, you know, this is a tricky subject. You know, there are really abstract concepts here, which you can't see, you can't touch, you can't feel. You know, biology has got its organisms and plants, and you can see 
cress grow and you can do woodlice experiments, things like that. And physics is, you know, very physical. You can do magnets and you can feel the force if you want to put it that way and electrostatics and all those things. Chemistry has its all, as you say, the pops and explosions, which, you know, kind of provide those hooks. But then you say, right, that was an explosion or that was a reaction that got hotter. What's going on there? Right, now we're going to talk about energetics. We're going to talk about particles that you can't see and you can't feel, you can't touch and you can't count. And so here's a whole bunch of abstract ideas to explain this. And we're just going to introduce a whole load of new vocabulary to you. It'll come, it'll come, but it really has to be quite a journey for them. I think A-level is the really key one where it all comes together quite clearly for the A-level students, it really isn't until probably halfway through year 13 when it really comes together and they really start seeing actually that stuff that we did over here and that stuff that we did over here. I can see now how that's coming together. And so that's one of the upsides in a way of the two-year A-level now. You don't feel them falling out, become disillusioned and just falling out of the course. You know, there are downsides to the two-year course, but that's that's one of the ones that Right, you're on this for two years. Let's go on this journey together. With the GCSE course, and I guess to an extent the A-level course, the disruption as a result of COVID-19 has meant that many of the experiments weren't conducted when we are in school. And obviously for a, a substantial part of the year for year 11 and also for year 10, they would have been distance learning, so wouldn't have been able to take part. How much of an impact do you think that missing out on practicals will have either for their holistic love of the subject and also for their ability to perform well in contexts? It's a tricky one to answer because we've seen them quite little since they've been back and now we're for the year 11s and the year 13s we're, we're about to enter this period of assessments in school and we've had to be careful about what contexts we use where they haven't had a chance to do the hands-on you know practicals or scene demonstrations live. We've had to you know think about which one is it fair to include in the teacher assessments. In terms of concepts, the kind of fundamental concepts of chemistry, that can all be taught theoretically. You know, there's not a, a great need to use particular practicals to prove concepts that can be done by discussion and, you know, on the board and writing these things out on interactive Zooms or whatever it happens to be. Almost the belief in chemistry that when you do some of these practicals yourselves, when you produce a phenomenon for yourself, when you get a feel for a particular phenomenon, it becomes much more personal knowledge to you. A demonstration works very well, but if you're the one that has mixed A and B and seen the precipitation or you've done your titration or whatever it happens to be, there's that ground in that tacit knowledge that it becomes part of your understanding that can't necessarily be articulated and can't necessarily be tested in a written test, but you get a better feel for the subject. In terms of the practical experience with equipment and practical skills, that will certainly have suffered and we will see that in year 12 when they come through. They'll be less skilled with the equipment, so that will need to take into account. In terms of the scientific process, the plan of investigations, the collection of data, there's some very good videos out there. There's some very good simulations out there, which I've used for my students. So that has not probably been impacted quite as bad, but it's, yeah, it's really that experience of phenomena and hands-on skills with equipment which will have suffered the most. It's I suppose reassuring to know that while not ideal there are alternatives out there as you say with the simulations on YouTube and others and presumably teachers are pointing students at these resources to really try to give them that feel that 
they're going to be well aware that they're missing out on. Yeah, and I mean, these simulations have been around for quite a while. So FET is from the University of Colorado. They've been producing really good simulations for many years, and people like the RSC have had good simulations for things like titration. And that was there as part of my teaching, you know, well before COVID, because there's something that you can get from a simulation that a practical is not necessarily the best for. So titration again, complex equipment, breakable equipment, and they're having to think about doing the practical collecting data and all of that. The simulation that I give to them before they try a practical out themselves allows them to make all the mistakes they would probably make in the class. And then we're not having broken equipment, we're not having them, you know, getting demotivated by, I can't make this practical work. And the simulations, you know, they allow you to get the concepts quite quickly through collection of model data and seeing that, for example, in a rates reaction, if I change this concentration here, I can see the rate goes up straight there. Whereas if it was a practical, that might take 15, 20 minutes with all the other stuff that they've got to do to just get to that point. So that sounds like a really great way of, of understanding how some of these experiments would have run, which brings us very neatly, I guess, onto looking at study tips in a broader sense. So a significant chunk, if not all of it, actually, of the terminal exam is based on this theoretical knowledge. What are the kinds of approaches to studying and revision that you advocate with chemistry for your students? Self-testing is a big one. There is a lot of content. There are, you know, lots of scientific ideas that they've got to have, you know, a good idea about. Lots of schools advocate knowledge organisers where these things have been summarised. Most students have a textbook and there are plenty of revision guides out there which, you know, summarise all this information. I'm a big fan of getting the students to be producing their own versions of this. So, you know, they've studied for two and a half years. Let's say there's 15 chapters in a chemistry course. They're not going to need necessarily to have every chapter split down into fact one, fact two, fact three, whatever it happens to be. If they are going through a chapter at a turn and saying, right, that bit I'm confident on, I don't need flashcards on that. This bit I do, I need to, you know, summarise that. And then using those, so either as physical flashcards, a lot of students still like the old index cards with, you know, question on one side, answer on the other, so they can test themselves or get a friend or family to test them, or things like Quizlet, so they can just do it on their phones. So getting that content in their head, making sure that they know their scientific facts, keywords is certainly key. We've got our, you know, very science-specific keywords. They've got to know what we mean by atom, molecule, iron synthesis force all of those kind of things some ways the trickier ones the words which are used in everyday life and in science some some people call these tier two vocabulary things like pure so in chemistry pure means something very specific in everyday life it means something else so pure orange juice versus pure sodium chloride for example they tend to be trickier when you learn photosynthesis in science that's the only time you come across it you don't come across photosynthesis really in everyday life meaning something else Looking at questions, past papers is obviously a big part of it. So we're four or five years into this current specification. So the examiners know what they're wanting in terms of answers for particular styles of questions. And, you know, common questions will be coming up every two or three years. So all the past papers are available. Mark schemes are available. So spending a bit of time, the students doing that analysis, looking at the kind of questions that come up looking at the mark schemes, seeing the way that particular examiners are looking. Now, in theory, examiners will mark correct science. 
So if the student answers it in a particular way, which is not what's on the mark scheme, they should be getting the marks. But I think all teachers know that certain times when they've had papers reviewed because answers look right, but the examiner didn't give it, sometimes that's not always the case because as ever, examiners are humans and you know they, they need to make a judgment. So sometimes it's worth just learning, right, if we answer a question in this way, that's what the examiners have been looking for over the last three years. So it's worth phrasing it in that way. And there are good websites out there that have collected questions together, you know, 20 questions on atomic structure, 20 questions on rates of reaction, and looking through what kind of questions come up commonly. Keywords, the command words in papers is one where students tend to trip up in science so that the classic two are describe and explain. They tend to answer explain questions as describe questions, so don't always get all of the marks. And compare and evaluate tend to be ones where, again, with an evaluate question, you're taking it further than just saying A is like B and A is dislike B. You're having to come up with some kind of conclusion, some kind of judgment based on your knowledge and the information. So really getting them to when they are going through past papers, when they're going through things in class, just having that conversation with the group. Let's have a look at this question. What are we expecting to do in the describe question? What are we expecting to do in an explain question? So they're the kind of general things there. And then, you know, I've got plenty to talk about, if you like, about how to actually approach papers themselves. Absolutely. One of the things I was keen to find out was the difference between, and it's something you've talked about again on your blog, I think it was, the difference between demonstrating and applying knowledge. So the flashcards and that system can be really good for gathering the information, for knowing atomic structures, for atomic masses and, and so on and so forth. But actually in answering the questions, it comes down to more than just knowing that, does it? Yeah. So in the parlance of the specification, that'll be the difference between your AO1 questions and your AO2 questions. Now, I tend not to talk to students about that particularly because I want them to always be looking to apply their knowledge in the questions. I know other subjects, I think art and DT, for example, where you know there are very specific differences between your assessment objectives where they really do talk about it a lot. But in terms of the science, I'm really getting them to appreciate that the very first thing you have to do when you're reading a question is read the question and think about what the question is asking you. Because it's the old classic, they write down some lovely chemistry, and then you look at it and you look at the question, and it's like, well, that's beautiful chemistry and perfectly right, but you haven't answered the question, so that'll be zero. And they're like, but it's it's correct chemistry. I'm like, yes, but you haven't done what you've been told. So every time there's a question and they make that kind of mistake, we're saying, well, have you got the command word right? Have you used all the information in the question? And have you applied your knowledge? Is this the particular context where you know, you've been given, let's say, the boiling points of three compounds, explain why these boiling points are different. You have to know about what causes one particular molecule to have a higher or a lower boiling point than another one, and then talk about it in this context. So this is a linear compound, for example, and this one's a branch compound. So compound one will have a higher boiling point, and compound two will have a lower boiling point because of this chemistry that I know from over here. So that's where the questions are harder because they have to retrieve that knowledge that they know and then apply it in a situation which they've never seen before. And we have the classic examples, carrot gates from two or three years ago with the A-level paper where all the students came out and were absolutely outraged that there was this question about carrots. You do know about osmosis. So did you apply that knowledge? 
No, right. So in a way, that's a failing of us as well as them, because we haven't made it clear enough to them that there are lots of different ways these questions can be asked. So not just sticking with your examples questions is a really good way to get around that. If you're doing AQA, go and look at some OCR papers, go and look at some NXL papers, because they'll ask it in a different way. And that gives you a lot more practice with applying your knowledge to different contexts. From an exam board perspective, I guess this isn't about tripping them up. This is actually about the differentiation of a student who understands what they've learned and can regurgitate it, and a student who has understood what they learned and can apply it in a number of different contexts. Yeah, not just from an exam board point of view, but the point of view of what we want from our children to be able to do from their education. You know, do we want to roll out a whole bunch of little robots that can regurgitate everything that we say is important and then they get to adulthood and it's like well can you live in the real world can you deal with this situation that you've just got into a job well i can tell you all about reactivity of group one metals excellent well we're working with group two metals here what can you do i don't know i wasn't taught about that you know education is as you know much more than just getting them to pass exams so these broader skills have been able to learn stuff but then do something useful with it. That's a key part of what we should be doing as teachers. And yes, it needs to be codified into an exam and it's codified through these assessment objectives. Know stuff and be able to talk about it, apply stuff, evaluate information. That's all there. But you know, what do I want for my students? I want my students to be able to go out and use a bit of that knowledge in their everyday life where it's relevant, not just be able to tell me about, you know, boiling points of as parents we can help support in the usual ways i presume so there are the primers and there is some knowledge that it would help us to have those conversations but as you mentioned before with the when we were looking at the study tips and methods actually doing things like flashcards and asking what's on one side when what's the answer on the other the various atomic symbols and and so on but actually it's still going to come down an awful lot to the students who want to do well actually going through past papers and really applying that knowledge and testing themselves, testing themselves in, a, in by which I mean stretching themselves to apply their knowledge in a, in a number of different ways. Yeah, I mean, the very best students will probably have done most of the past papers by Easter, and then we still have weeks and weeks before they sit exams in normal times or teacher assessments this year. You know, if they've done all the past papers, then it is a case of saying, right, well, here are a different exam board, or let's make it different. Let's you two sit together and you are going to come up with questions for each other. So you come up with some questions. How are you going to fit, let's say, concept A from this section and concept B together? Put those two together and come up with a question. So this kind of generating knowledge, generating questions, which will make them think about it more deeply. And hopefully those students are the kind of ones that are going to want to do A-level. And also get them to ask questions like, well, this concept, we've learned it and you've done some questions here, but what are the flaws in that concept? Where does this fall apart? Electron structure, for example, we teach you that there's two in the first shell and eight in the second shell and eight in the third shell, but is that really true? Is there something else going on or is this a simplified model we teach here? So pushing them on and getting them to critique that knowledge that we're teaching them. So as you say, a number of people do combined science over the single sciences and is it still applicable for those students to go on to do chemistry? How much reduced are they if parents are thinking that their children are interested in doing chemistry at an A-level? Should they be concerned that they didn't do it as a single science GCSE? Everything that 
is learned extra in the separate sciences is basically the first term of a level half term term depending on how fast the course is being taught so no student is disadvantaged when they start the course in terms of they were going to be taught everything they need for the a level there's nothing special in the separate sciences which doesn't then get taught in the a level where perhaps some struggle a bit more is because maybe it's the first time they're coming across a particular concept like titration i keep coming back to that one because it's just one that's there you know if they haven't done titration at gcse and then you launch into a level and you do it within the first three four weeks those that have done it at GCSE are going to be like, oh, I know this and I know this and I've, I've done all that. So they're then just revising their knowledge and having another go at it. Someone else is a little bit further behind and they've got to go through all those, you know, mistakes and learning and all of that. You know, there are lots of different reasons why someone might end up doing combined science. It might be a timetabling issue. If the separate science gets extra extra lesson time in the timetable, then maybe they've chosen to do other subjects. And in terms of them having a broad education, that's a good thing. In terms of maybe the school restricts it just to one set. And so, you know, if 35 people say are in that set, then there's just no room for that. That's then a kind of leadership and management issue within the school about why it's not there. And, you know, there are resources plenty out there for, you know, those who have ended up on the combined science do well, get their, you know, six, seven, eights, nines, and know that they're going to be doing the A-level. There's good transition guides. CGP have got good ones. There's plenty of videos out there on YouTube. You can do a little bit, and I'm sure any child who wants to do that can talk to their teachers and say, can you suggest some stuff for me to do over the summer just to help me get up to speed? And certainly for this year, presumably this, this A-level year's intake, all students will have a fair amount of the curriculum that they'll need to cover, perhaps for the first time, that would have been covered in GCSE in any case. So it's is it more likely that people will be in the same boat? Possibly. It very much depends on the school. So our school, we just happened to, at the beginning of last year, had moved to Teams and we were getting going with, you know, kind of Teams and online video calls and stuff like that. And then lockdown came and we're like, well, we've got the infrastructure. We We're not expert yet, but we very quickly managed to go from face-to-face to to online learning without a huge amount of disruption. Other schools where the systems just weren't in place and they had to put that in place first and then get everyone trained up, yes, you know, students will have potentially covered less of the content at GCSE. But, you know, every year you get a class of, you know, it might be five, it might be 20 students in front of you. It's going to be a big mixed bag anyway. So you're going to be spending the first few weeks doing your diagnostic questions, talking to the students, finding out where they are. And some students, it might be, right, actually, these next three weeks, you're pretty solid on that. Go off and do some independent work, maybe do a little investigation. Maybe we'll pay you up in some lessons because we're going to be doing some foundational stuff. We're going to get everyone to a level and then we'll start building from there. You know, it's a two-year course. There's time to get these things fixed. One of those things, I guess, if the student is a keen budding chemist that... Actually, they shouldn't be put off. They should follow that through and and take it up if they feel it's for them. Yeah, I've had students who did extraordinarily well with separate science and just didn't get on with their A-level. And I've had combined science students who, you know, struggled, got their six, so they meet the criteria, but then took off and flew at A-level. I've got students who struggled at the start of year 12 and by year 13 were flying and 
great students in year 12 who just kind of went on a slow downward slope all the way through to the end of year 13. You know, it's not linear. Everyone knows learning isn't linear. People peak at different times and, you know, life happens. You know, we've had COVID. We've got through it. There's loads of problems out there still to be solved and we'll, it's going to take years for all this to work through. But just because someone's doing great at the start of a course, you can't guarantee they're going to be doing great at the end. We work with who's in front of us. David, thank you for your time and for sharing your insights and tips on revising chemistry today. Many of us will not have had a need to explicitly call on what we learnt in our school science lessons. And that can often make students question whether they should bother, especially if they don't pick it up quickly. And as we heard from David, chemistry is a subject where you learn in increments. A little bit of knowledge about chemical structure helps to understand chemical properties in which in turn can then help to learn about chemical structure. It's little wonder that this can be a subject that many find difficult to love. But it is absolutely something that's worth getting to grips with. As David said from outset, an awareness of science has a significant impact upon us. It might not be the detail of understanding atomic mass or the role of electrons and protons, but increasing that scientific capital, as David called it, is important, if not vital, to how we live. In particular, I was really struck by the impact of understanding and applying scientific method. I'm sure that many of us will remember from our own school days writing up experiments under the rigid headings of aim, method, results and conclusions. This logical, systematic approach is something that shapes how we go about problem saving or gaining an understanding in later life. Now, we might not commit it to paper, but it is there. As too does the need for evidence to support our conclusions. Although we might not always see evidence of this in every walk of modern life. But it all comes from a really good grounding in the sciences, which is why it's so important to find ways of helping our teens in these subjects. Something I've taken from David's advice is this distinction between being able to regurgitate facts and knowledge, the rote learning, and having an ability to apply that knowledge. Of course, you need to have retained the facts in the first place, but understanding context and application is pivotal in performing well. As ever, I'm a fan of the flashcard route, and from my own experiences with my year 10 daughter, these work especially well in chemistry and sciences. With the scientific terms, the equations, or common questions on one side, she can test herself, or do it with a friend, or a willing parent, and build up her retrieval. But after talking to David, I'm also thinking about the application of that knowledge. And it definitely seems that students should be building in time to look at their past questions as well. For those parents who, like me, might have forgotten more than they remember, I'd absolutely recommend you taking a look at David's parent primer. It's not as heavy as learning the GCSE content, although it's also fair to say this isn't exactly Mickey Mouse content either. Now, many of us unfortunately won't have the capacity, even if we had the inclination to churn through all of this, but there are some really helpful questions at the end of these sections that you can use to spur your teen on to think about the subject areas, and you get to look quite knowledgeable, phone into the bargain. In the spirit of sharing resources, 
the study buddy will also be providing a breakdown of chemistry GCSE specifications across all of the exam boards. And you can find these free download links on our website, thestudybuddy.com. Just go and have a look for this episode under the podcast section. And thank you for listening. I hope that you found this episode as interesting and useful as I have. If you did, I wonder if you'd take a moment to leave a five-star rating and perhaps a review too. It really does help us reach other parents and spread the word on how they can support their own young people. Of course, sharing the link to this and other episodes with your friends on social media is always very much appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.